This is the Mouthing Off podcast from Bad Mouth Theater Company. I'm Amanda Forstrom. I'm Mari Sittner. And I'm Kevin Couchman. We're a theater company based in St. Paul, Minnesota. We love live performance, but we want to reach the widest possible audience. So for every project we do, we make digital content, which all goes into our podcast here. Mouthing Off features guest interviews and discussions with actors, playwrights, theater people, and our collaborators at Badmouth. We also use Mouthing Off to present theatrical readings of the work we're doing. So wherever you are in the world, you can enjoy Badmouth's work. Find us online at badmouthtc.com and on Twitter at badmouthtc. Enjoy the show. back with another action-packed, fun-filled episode of Mouthing Off, a theater podcast from Bad Mouth Theater Company. I'm Kevin Couchman, joined by my partners in crime, Mari Sittner. Mari, how are you? Doing pretty good, you know, back in my aunt's basement, doing it the way <laughs> we always did it. Mmm, all, uh, all that money in theater. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You're not at the Miami condo. What are you? What are you telling me? Uh, and then, of course, Amanda Forstrom. Amanda, you were just in Las Vegas. I was just in Las Vegas for less than 24 hours, doing a uh, the watching the premiere of Move Me No Mountain, and the director won the filmmaker of the year at the Nevada Film Festival. So that was pretty pretty awesome. And the movie and was fantastic. A, yeah, this is a movie you star in. Not star in, but I am in. Mm, I got third you, billing, so I can't okay, complain, you know? Right. All right. Can't okay. complain. Well, so it didn't turn into like a the room situation out in Las Vegas where you show up and you go, oh, no, what have I done? <laughs> no, it didn't. But I was a little scared because I hadn't seen anything since, you know, I filmed it in fall of... 2021 last year so it's been a while since i've you know seen anything or been kind of around it and of course most of the people are local which is awesome but uh yeah it's been wild and it was awesome it was really it was came together it was i'm so i'm so glad we'll leave room to talk about that a little more too i'm sure uh but you raced back to minnesota here in order to partake of this interview that we're doing with the playwright of it's all read like a metaphor or something monty d montalegre monty how are you i'm doing great i'm happy to be here i'm excited i'm on a podcast i feel important <laughs> oh no it's the opposite <laughs> you want to flip your script this is the inferno this is not paradiso uh, <laughs> we's going down no but hey, this is be still yeah. important you know Oh, especially I think in this day and age, but, uh, mm -hmm. and you're, and you're in Denver, you, you that's mentioned. right. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm in Denver this weekend for, uh, for another play that opened on Thursday and I was able to see it a couple of times last night. Uh, just a short immersive work for a single audience member. So it was really cool to be able to sit in the corner and watch the audience member react to being inducted into a cult. Love it. What's the name of this immersive experience? It is called Salt Mother. Salt uh, Mother. Yeah, and it's it's a fun little a fun little piece. There's lots of singing, uh, a little bit of dancing, a nice sermon in the middle of it, and we're it's a short play, so we're able to do it like seven times a night. How many actors does uh, does it require? It uh, it can be done with as many actors as you want. We did it with six actors. I like it when the there are uh, f at least five cultists to the audience <laughs> member so that they are outnumbered by four or more. And then there's also the salt mother who comes and gives the sermon and then talks mm -hmm. to the audience member. Right. Yeah, you really New want to dream wait. roll just dropped. <laughs> <laughs> that actually sounds pretty cool. Uh, yeah, you definitely want to ratio that one audience member. Mm -hmm. You want them to feel overwhelmed. Oh, yeah. Well, let's talk more about that. We will get into It's All Red, which, of course, is the play that we are doing at Badmouth Theater Company, badmouthtc.com. If you're listening to this, you probably know that already. But in any event, <laughs> uh, we have a podcast. You're listening to it now. We're doing a series of five plays. Monty's is the fourth of five. This is our first 
outing uh, whatsoever. And we're doing this in partnership with this fabulous brewing company uh, in St. Paul, Minnesota here called Waldman. And uh, we have to thank them. The space that they've given us is outstanding. It's this wonderful room upstairs in their old building. We're going to be doing Monty's play there uh, coming up here on Monday, the 27th of June, 2022, but it will also be online. And so we're excited to be talking with you, Monty. This is, mm-hmm. this is a lot of fun. I, I encountered your play. Well, first, no, I want to talk more about this cult play. So what's the, <laughs> what's the, <laughs> we'll get yeah. to It's All Red. Yeah. We've yet to record uh, our version of It's All Red. We're doing that tomorrow. I, I can't mm-hmm. wait. Uh, but it, what's the origin? What's the genesis of this so, salt mother? It's got, it's got two origins. And the first one is a joke. I was texting a friend of mine and I asked her what the opposite of a sugar daddy was. And the opposite of a sugar daddy is a salt mother. <laughs> um, so that is, that is where the title comes from. I really like the image that mm. evokes, mm. Um, like the way that mm-hmm. those words feel when I say them felt very powerful and very esoteric. Uh, it also comes from, uh, it was inspired a lot by a play that, uh, Kevin, you know him, Tom actually wrote in New York City that I was able to see. And what he, uh, and I loved this play and what he put through the audience through was very interesting to me. And I took a lot of permission to write a play that would be aggressive to its audience. So I wanted to write a play that only one person would be allowed to see at a time. And that would be slightly different every time an audience member saw it. So that if two people come to see it together, they see it back to back, they'll get slightly different versions of the show. There are three different sermons that the Salt Mother will give in the middle of the play. Uh, So different audience members receive different sermons uh, and are therefore less able to connect to each other about it. And in the metatextual sense, more able to connect to the other cult members about it. Uh, It's Mm. not a real cult. Don't join the cult. Not but yet. It is not yet. Uh, <laughs> it depends how profitable it becomes, you know. Um, <laughs> Indeed. But that that was really the the genesis of it was. Oh, I can be a little more aggressive to my audience and see uh, what comes out of it. And people have really enjoyed it. Like people have who have deeper connections to religion than I do have had really interesting, um, positive, and intense reactions to it, uh, which has been fun to see. And it's also. Well, Go ahead. Yeah, I just want to give credit to mutual friend Tom Block is the Mm -hmm. playwright he's mentioning. And Tom and I co-founded a group called Cut Edge Collective, which meets in New York City. And that's how Monty and I know one another. Mm -hmm. I'm no longer very involved because I'm not there any longer. Uh, But it's an experimental theater collective. And that's very cool that Tom had a play that inspired you, Monty. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It was fun when like, I went and wrote Something I, I had been interested in writing something to do with cults for a little bit, and this is the one that stuck. I love Ulcer. that you're really asking a lot of the of the one audience member and sort of isolating them in that. Mm-hmm. It's just I love working on those types of plays as an actor because you're you know you're asking a lot of them and like come on this ride with us instead of kind of catering down it's like oh here's just some fluff that you can watch and forget about as soon Mm -hmm. as you leave the theater that it really sticks with you and and they they're along for the roller coaster it's awesome yeah and you're able to do that because the play's 15 minutes long so if they hate it they'll get out of there soon (laughs) have you had any really bad reactions from audience members we haven't Uh, i think the there was a person who came to see it last night who me and Leah, the director, weren't sure how she felt about it. But then she got her friend to come and try and buy a ticket. So I guess she felt good enough about it to convince him. I think there's something to be said, too, about giving a single person that much attention, the mm-hmm. attention of six mm-hmm. actors for 15 whole minutes. We're, in our world, we're very stingy with attention in a funny way. Our yeah. attention is taken on everywhere. So you feel, and of course, this is the cliche thing to say, Monty, <laughs> but this could only be done in the theater. There will never be a film version of Salt Mother that would yeah. be anywhere approximate what the experience is. And that's yeah. what theater exists to do. And I think, especially in like an immersive setting, 
is such an interesting thing to do with that. Uh, Leah, the director of this piece, is big into immersive theater, and we met in college, and we've worked on uh, other immersive things together. And this is this has been a joy to be a part of. Mm. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, I wish I could experience it. <laughs> and that's Leah Cardenas for everybody listening to the podcast. Sure. All right. Well, Leah, I hope you're listening. Uh, it sounds very, very cool. And of course, Monty got to, is it your first time in Denver? Uh, well, I went to Denver when I was very young. So I remember going to a rock wall and I remember it raining and it hasn't rained too much and I haven't seen a rock wall. So Denver's changed so much. <laughs> maybe, maybe it's you, Monty. <laughs> oh, maybe. Uh, yeah. Right. Right. And of course you got to fly through the, the satanic airport, mm-hmm. the, Right. I hope you, you should ar- try and arrive early on the way out and see if you can spot all the crazy stuff. Yeah, I'm excited to do a little bit of exploring there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. S- speaking of cults, do you know this film, uh, Sound of My Voice? Do you know this film? I don't you- think so. There's a bell ringing, but I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't want to derail too much, but you might check it out. It, it's an extremely low-budget indie that made a big uh, splash, I think, at Sundance. It's the same people who now do or did the OA. They made their careers oh, okay. really small films, uh, but it's about a cult. And oh. yeah, it's, it's quite cool. You might be interested in that. Yeah, I'll check that uh, out. Yeah, yeah, you might you might dig it. Um, but I think this is a hallmark of your work, from what I know and can tell, is this idea of really pure theatricality. Mm-hmm. And that makes you stand out, I would say, from quite quite a few American playwrights who are mired in realism and you sort of think, ah, well, I could see this as a movie. Yeah. I don't I don't think it's all read like a metaphor or something. <laughs> Will, will ever make its way to the cinema. Uh, and so maybe b- before we get into it, like, I'm just going to say, can I read the content warning? Absolutely. You can read <laughs> okay. the content warning and it's so there just, to be read. Yeah. And so just to be clear, we will be doing an online reading of this play and you'll be able to find it wherever you found this podcast, right? We, we put these things out as kind of a couple there, this is this podcast is the spouse of the other podcast, uh, <laughs> and but here here's the content warning. Before all else, a content warning. This play has a lot of suicidal and self destructive characters in it, including times where suicide plans are discussed on stage uh, in detail. It also has some self harm, off stage drug use, on stage drinking, gambling, physical violence, death, murder, blood, and guns. <laughs> And I'm just like, yeah, bring it on. Uh, you know, it, it's such an unusual play. Uh, it, it really stood out when we uh, read it at Cut Edge. And mm-hmm. uh, so I'm just glad that we can engage with it. Um, Mari, Amanda, do you have any any questions uh, about the play? You know, sort of, I know what I would ask, but I, I feel like I've gone on. I mean, my number one question is ensemble what do you see going on in this play? I mean, you seem so invested in having like a large ensemble and it seems like mm-hmm. that's a big part of your kind of writing process since you wrote a big ensemble yeah. play. Is that... It's, what's interesting here is uh, when I wrote this play, I wrote it with each vignette disconnected from the last one uh, aside from a general kind of tone and theme that I was working with. This play can be done live with as few as five people um, because they can play multiple characters because characters don't show up again after they show up the first time. I also really love the idea of a large ensemble cast. And it it comes up in that first uh, vignette or the number zero, perhaps, Nola, where you have a large cast just as a tableau on stage as the audience arrives. Uh, I I was interested um, in this, in that like a director of this in a full production has to reckon with the fact that they are holding a position of power over their actors and should have to think about that a little bit. Uh, And so it can be done with, I don't know, there are almost 40 characters. You could have more actors than characters in it if you wanted. but it can also be done with as many or as few as five. Yeah, right. 
there's so much humor even in the setup. Mm-hmm. When I read, when I'm looking at the uh, Dramatis Personae, it's like, what is this play, right? Uh, <laughs> you know, yeah, it's, it's, I, I have to figure out tomorrow when we record it, how we're going to handle this because I almost want to read the whole, <laughs> the whole setup because there's so much humor. And, and of course, as a, as a playwright, you know, you're up against thousands of other scripts. Oh, yeah. Of other scripts. So how do you stand out and show that you have a grasp of the theatrical, if not the dramatic? And I think that you, you accomplished that. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting submitting this to opportunities that I find online because they ask sometimes for a list of characters and I'm like, oh, are you really going to make me type out <laughs> all of these characters? <laughs> I'll do it, but you're just going to be confused by the end of it. Right, right. They want Tom, a laid-off factory worker in the you know in the Midwest. You want Jane, his his ex-wife. You know, it's like no. Like you want an age and a gender. Okay, none of these characters have either of those. Most of them are skeletons. Some of them are novelty fish. The best one is the loose bones. Who really? His only description is that he really wants some cookies. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Well, I mean. And and the play, when did you write the play? I wrote this play, oh, what year was it? It was early 2021, I mm-hmm. think. Um, it was like the end of winter, just starting in spring. Um, I remember that the the news surrounding the GameStop pump was... Uh, was still happening and makes its way into a couple of these scenes. And that sort of capital A is what the play is about is mm-hmm. I don't want to tell it. Well, my reading of it, of course, is that it's all red and mm-hmm. it's you're responding to this market hysteria. To yeah. And that is yeah. certainly one of the responses. It's another part of the setup is you have the pick one more all, and that is absolutely one of the options. Um, and one of the options that I invite, because uh, financial matters work its way into a lot of these uh, vignettes, both in express ways and less expressed ways. Did you get into the GameStop play? Did you? I I tried. I got in a little bit late. I made maybe twenty dollars on it. Oh, <laughs> like. Uh, and then I tried to do some other investing with it. I think I made a little bit more money on AMC. Um, mm. And then I saw that all of the uh, b- board members of AMC were selling off all their stock. And I was like, I don't know if this is a good idea anymore. I don't like this movie anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, I, have you ever, uh, did you get into crypto? Did you get sucked into crypto? I, I did a little bit of crypto. And then I like I made maybe a hundred dollars on Dogecoin, but as I did more research on crypto, I I pulled out of it more and more uh, just with just with some of the environmental concerns. Mm-hmm. I wasn't super into it anymore. And then like NFTs happened and I, now NFTs have gone by the wayside uh, in public interest, which is it's interesting to see how the the crypto communities interact with themselves and then interact with the people outside of the community. It is fascinating. It's extremely mm-hmm. theatrical. I got very sucked into mm-hmm. crypto. My, my take on it, uh, not to derail from your play, but yeah, my absolutely. take on it is that um, if, you ha- if you didn't lose money in, all, in, in any of those things that we just mentioned, you're a giant winner. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's, it's, it's scary, but you, you hear the stories about how much people put into these these things just to lose and mm-hmm. just to lose it. Yes. The, maybe the scariest story recently is the Luna collapse where you have these people who have been around crypto since 2017, went through hell, finally had their, ma- their you know, make it bag. They had 1.5 million. They put it all in Luna because the 20% APY gone mm-hmm. overnight yeah <laughs> you just go yeah oh my god and, and it's just like it's not and it's people that need money to survive that are losing this money 
and it, the people that already have enough money to do this sort of thing will be fine. And that is of course. just mm-hmm. such a such an awful position that a lot of people have fallen into. Yeah. Well, when you began to write the play, was there a particular impetus? What, <laughs> what's the kernel? Yeah. Oh, the, mm-hmm. the kernel for the play uh, is through the Do- Dramatist Guild, I was able to get a thousand dollar voucher for online therapy. And my... <laughs> I remember that. And my... Yeah, that's great. And I was like, you know what? Why not? I'll do some free therapy. This is the best insurance I've ever had. And uh, I did that. And my therapist was like, you should really write a journal. And I tried writing a journal. And at the same time, I started writing this play. And this, this ended up being much more of a journal uh, emotionally than the other one did. And I certainly fell off the other one. This is the product. I kind of want to read the journal now. (laughs) (laughs) No, the journal doesn't have any jokes written in it, though. Oh. Right. How did you conceive of the structure of the play, which is, I believe, is it, it's 10 scenes. I'm looking at it right now. Yeah. The structure of the play is um, more incidental to, I think, post, and I can't say post-pandemic, people still get COVID, but after, like, the first major lockdown, it's so hard to focus on something for an extended period of time. Mm. So I end up writing a bunch of shorter things. Like I write a scene that is as long as I'm interested in the scene. And then I don't worry about it anymore. And then I go on to another general idea that holds my interest. That's in this kind of same tone and mood and all of that. Uh, Until I had 10 of them because 10 feels like a very good number. Um, and it, it feels like it tells a story in 10 parts or tells a mood in 10 parts of how I was feeling at that point. Hmm. Right. It's genuinely experimental, which I, I really admire. I'm going to read the mm-hmm. Nulla read the source. I'm going to read the opening here. Cause may I, mm-hmm. do you mind? Oh, go ahead. I just think this is so fascinating. Perhaps there will be a show tonight. Perhaps there is something which precedes the show. Perhaps the bones and red lay strewn about a stage, posed perfectly. Perhaps they stand in a pretty picture. Perhaps they do not move. Perhaps you are the monster who posed them there and told them to stand still for an hour or 40. Perhaps you should think about this. (laughs) It's so provocative. I love it. Yeah, and we talked a little bit about me wanting to be challenging to an audience with Salt Mother. Uh, with Nola read the source and the, the final scene as well, I wanted to be really challenging to a director on like, hey, why, are you, why do you want to be able to tell these people where to stand? Like, why do you want that kind of power over somebody? And I direct my own work a lot of the time, so that's a challenge to myself as well. Yeah, this is definitely the school of playwriting that I come out of. Monty, what's your what's your background? Where are you from originally? Where did you when did you know yeah. you were a play? Well, let's let's say originally, yeah, yeah. and then when did you know you were a playwright? So I was born in Omaha, Nebraska. Uh, I lived there most of my life. I went to school all the way through high school, and then when college rolled around, it was time to get out of Omaha, and I moved to Lincoln, Nebraska. Ah, uh, the big city. <laughs> yeah, it's a smaller city than Omaha. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> uh, and I went, to, I went to a small liberal arts college called Nebraska Wesleyan University. Um, and I knew that I wanted to write plays my senior year of high school because I had taken an advanced placement uh, English course. And then I took a creative writing course from the same teacher. And I had done mm. drama since my freshman year of high school, usually as an actor, sometimes as a techie. Um, and finally, like my senior year, uh, the teacher of those English courses was like, you should write plays. You've been doing theater. You've got an act for some writing. You should try it. Um, and I knew I was going to go to school for, originally I wanted to do music. I'm glad I did theater instead. Uh, but I went with the plan of, I want to learn how to write plays. Uh, and I want to do that. And the advantage of Wesleyan uh, or Nebraska Wesleyan, because there are other Wesleyans in other states, is that we do like 50 shows a year. Uh, oh, like wow. there, are, there are a number of main stage staff-directed shows, but there's also a large number of student-directed work. And just as a playwright, there is such an opportunity to get work produced 
uh, by student bodies and put it in front of a student audience. And I was able to, like, I had, oh, man, we did more shows by me than Shakespeare by the time my senior year rolled around. Oh, you got a big head now. (laughs) (laughs) I've got a a big head because of that. Uh, Put that right on my resume, never get a gig again. (laughs) I'm bigger than Shakespeare in in Lincoln, Nebraska. In Lincoln, Nebraska, at one college for a four-year period, I was... I had a higher quantity than Shakespeare. <laughs> Bigger than the Bard. <laughs> um, yes. <laughs> but that that was like the school that I came from. And then I went to the Twin Cities. Uh, I lived in St. Paul, where you all are at now. And I couldn't get a single thing produced. <laughs> um, like I did some tech work for a couple of places. I did, a, I was a tech worker for the puppetry, the National Puppetry Festival. Mm-hmm. one summer that i was there and that was awesome i actually think this show would be really cool with puppets in it it's an option that i list somewhere um and then i moved to new york city and i started to get 10 minute plays produced um and that's where i'm at now i get like a some longer reading sometimes and then a lot of short plays and i really like the form of short plays which i think is also where the structure of this one comes from yeah that mm. dovetails into the next point i had which maybe is something of a question too, but I admire how baroque the play is and how it, and nevertheless, it maintains its own integrity. Mm-hmm. This is like, like I said earlier, this is not a kitchen sink drama. There, there are characters come and go and it's very sort of uh, frenetic. And mm-hmm. I admire that. I don't quite know how you pull it, pull it off. I don't think I could do it. Uh, so I really, I really do admire that. Can you, can you talk a little more about that, yeah. that structure and how you, how Absolutely. do you make the whole thing hang together? Yeah. It's, I find recently that I've been writing plays that are tone first and that mm-hmm. the connective tissue is the way the play feels rather mm-hmm. than a uh, overarching plot or an overarching theme or uh, character driven pieces I'm very interested in a play that holds a consistent tone and a consistent mood and is not as concerned with the other pieces. Uh, And because it's not concerned with those pieces, they come on their own. But it's the connective tissue of It's All Red really is that each scene holds a tone that builds on and leads into the next scene. Uh, Which also makes it very interesting to describe to people who ask for a plot synopsis. (laughs) it's like there's not one (laughs) right there isn't one there is no plot in this play per se right um i can give a plot synopsis of individual vignettes but not of the overarching play because that's not the point and if you look for that you're not going to find it Hmm. did you set out to write this way or is it something you discovered for this play i mean uh for this play it's certainly something i discovered along the way uh, mm. by not worrying about by not worrying about an overarching like rising action climax falling action um there is there is a rhythm to it i think but i i really just gave myself permission to be like all right i'm done with this scene i'm going to work on a different scene um that has nothing plot wise character wise to do with the last scene and just go from there I think it's really interesting that in the consumption of a play like this, it seems very much like memes, you know, mm-hmm. and how, how we consume, uh, you know, and a whole philosophical idea and argument in sort of these short little memes or gifs or gifs or however you say it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and instead of these sort of long winded uh, stories and you, you know, you see this very linear journey that this one character goes on or this family or friends or whatever, but it's a series of, of tiny short things that encompass so much. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's a really, you, it's a really unique uh, perspective or facet of art of the younger generation. Yeah. I think uh, there was another influence on this piece that I haven't mentioned yet. It's a poem, uh, kind of a poem let me make sure i'm getting this name right really quick 
Uh, it's called Bluettes. It's by the writer Maggie Nelson. It is a novella-length poem about the color blue and her relationship to it. And that is a little bit reductive about what it is, but that is another source of where this comes from in the relation to the color. Uh, and this play is very much in relation to the color red. And what does the color red make you feel, Monty? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you'll have to listen to the play and find out. Uh-huh. It, it makes me feel a lot of things. The color red is my favorite color and has huh. been since I was able to conceive of it uh, as a person. My, red has always been my favorite color as long as people have asked me and that I was a conscious being after four years old or whenever that happened for me. Uh, my room in my apartment is decorated all in red. My office chair, incredibly uncomfortable, but it's red. <laughs> um, That's great. Yeah, it's it's a very exciting color to me. It's very, um, like, it can mean so many different things. Like, it, it's an angry color, but it is also a passionate color. It is the color most associated with love, and it is also the color most associated with violence. Indeed. Indeed it is. You're creating in this play an event. It mm-hmm. isn't a play in the, the sense that we go and we see, uh, I guess, what streetcar, love streetcar, nothing against streetcar, street yeah. but you kind of get the idea. You sit, you sit in your seat. The, he yells, Stella, you, you go home and, mm-hmm. and you get on with your life. Uh, this is something different. What do you think about that in terms of like theater as event, Monty? You seem to have a, I, a sense of that. I love theater as an event. I love theater as a ritual um, because you are, it is a ritual. You are all in the same place. And um, ideally the same play gets produced by different people multiple times. And it has a life outside of the script and the actual act of bringing that script to life is a ritual that is repeated by different people over time ideally if you're lucky um but also uh at the final vignette infinitum read the favored i ask that you serve uh little treats to the audience in very much what we could consider an event outside of like a theatrical space that reminds me maria amanda we need to get some little treats for the end of the the reading so let, let's yes. talk about a production meeting we have to talk about that Yes, because they have some amazing pickled beets. Mm. Um, this like beautiful deep red color, and I'm just like, let's let's serve these beets. Absolutely. That's a great idea. Yeah, I I I went to something earlier today. Um, I don't know if you guys are aware. It's called Meow Wolf. It's they're like a collective of art installation artists. Um, it's like and in they, a big house, right? Yeah, and I went to their Denver location today. And it's essentially a warehouse that they built with the intention of being a permanent art installation. Uh, It's really weird. It's really cool. And it's, you know, it's theatrical in its own way. You can unlock a story if you follow the story and are interested in that. Or you can just explore this world that has been built. And in a lot of ways, I feel like that is an event. Um, Mm. Because you are interacting with it in some way beyond just sitting in a chair and there is an intellectual and emotional interaction with uh, proscenium theater but there's also something about being able to wander around a warehouse until you accidentally find a room that is designed as a giant synth board and then be able to make a song with complete strangers okay (laughs) yeah it's it's a cool place go to it if you can they've got Mm. other locations like santa fe and las vegas meow wolf yeah. Interesting. Now I wish when I was ve- in Vegas, I wish I would have checked that out. Mm-hmm. Dang it. And it's there. Each location is a different um, theme. Like this one is called the convergence. And it's essentially the story is that a multiverse converged here. And as you go from room to room, you're seeing different pieces of the multiverse. Wow. Sounds very, very, really lowbrow. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little bit pop art, but there's something. Okay. It makes it, uh, it makes it very accessible to a wide audience and mm-hmm. it, it pulls people. They have thousands of people that come by a day. That's awesome. I love wow. it. That's mm-hmm. so cool. Well, and so I'm looking at the script again and the mm-hmm. first scene, it's all red. 
there's a novelty fish and, and it describes, well, so I'm going to describe the, the cast of the first scene, right? Yeah. For, yeah. For fun. Skeleton, suicidal, recently made a lot of money. Novelty fish, would rather be fishing. <laughs> Divorcee, widow, question mark. Bear, food delivery, wannabe assassin. Normal human being, wannabe clown. Other skeleton, recently given life, suicidal. What like okay? What the novelty fish? Where does that idea come from? <laughs> I wanted I wanted one character to be talking through a really heavy subject, and the other character to be absolutely ignoring them. Hmm. And I I don't know why I landed on I think I landed on the novelty fish because I wanted the other character to just be talking about fishing the whole time and just ignoring everything that the first skeleton is saying. And I thought it'd be pretty funny if it was a novelty fish talking about fishing and a scene about suicide. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I, indeed, I think it is. It makes me think of the Sopranos where he starts having dreams of the Billy big mouth bass. Mm-hmm. Is that the novelty type <laughs> fish type fish that you're thinking? Yes, of? Yes, <laughs> absolutely. There's actually one on the wall in this apartment. Uh, this is a podcast, so you can't look at it, but for everybody else, it's way over there. So that's yes. just some crazy synchronicity. Oh yeah. <laughs> huh? Okay, good. Okay. We're on the right track. Yeah. But it, it's, it's absolutely supposed to be one of those just mechanical singing fish. Right, right. Well, uh, if we're Mark, talking about characters, what are the skeletons? Like, talk about the skeletons. I find the idea of bones to be funny, uh, which is an insane <laughs> thing to say out loud and put into the public. But I just, I, skeletons uh, hold an interesting place in pop culture because they're often, like, they're spoopy. They're kind of like that spooky, funny area. They're very rarely at this point actual instruments of horror they're just um piles of bones that rattle around and play the rib cages like xylophones and i think the mixture of like death imagery with comedy uh and the way that we portray skeletons is really interesting i poly uh polygon.com put out a video about the skeletons in dark souls and elden ring and other souls like games that was pretty interesting um about like how skeletons are kind of inherently funny in how like they move and how they rattle around, but are also symbols of death. Like death is a skeleton on a horse. And it's an interesting mixture at that intersection. Well, they're also yeah, so makes perfect me... for this play. Sorry, mm-hmm. Amanda, you go. No, go ahead. It, it makes me think of that uh, SNL sketch of that David Pumpkins, mm-hmm. you know, where they're, it's like supposed to be this horror thing and they're going around and, oh, they're skeletons. And then they just like start dancing with him. I don't know. It's yeah. just very, yeah. it was very silly, but you're right. They have this, you know, it's, it's sad. Mm-hmm. You know, when you think about, you know, it was a person, but it's also funny. I feel like Excuse skulls me. are scary, but the whole skeleton's not. Yeah. Ah. <laughs> We've yeah, cracked what? the code. <laughs> yes. What is that? Well, you think about Disney, the early Disney cartoon, right? Mm-hmm. And and Mari, that, that point that you made, uh, yeah, joins with the, the, the thinking that I had as we were talking about this, that I think the skull is maybe about the individual that like a brain was in that head and that's maybe where the soul of that person lived such as it it is, or at least like it's the person's being their memories, all of it. Mm -hmm. But then Yorick. Ah, indeed. Yeah. And, and meanwhile though, it's, it's, I think it could be the nudity of it, the nudity Mm -hmm. of the skeleton and everything stripped away and it's sort of rendered democratic. And so the, the, the skeleton of a, of a great king is, you know, you you couldn't tell the difference between that and a and a um, the court jester. Same, yeah. everything's stripped down. That might kind of I have no idea. I'm I, I'm curious to maybe <laughs> go read about well, it. Yeah, that's how why I think the skeletons work so perfectly in this play. Is I think that when you have actors playing multiple characters, and you have you know when you discuss your dramatis persona you're saying anybody could play these characters everybody's has a skeleton they're Mm -hmm. easy to project upon 
they're a really easy thing for multiple different actors to all be playing skeletons and different skeletons. So it was that, was that part of it? Was that on purpose? That's part of it too. I, I think a part of it also, especially in that first scene uh, where the theme of suicide is discussed in depth, it's a little bit easier uh, when you're seeing it live if a skeleton's talking about suicide because the skeleton's already supposed to be dead. <laughs> so like right. it, it's more of a joke. It's easier to stomach rather than if you have like a live fleshy person up there like, I don't want to be here anymore. If you have a skeleton, it's like, you're already not supposed to be here, dude. <laughs> this is a play that begins with the thought of suicide, right? Mm-hmm. Quite literally, the first line is the skeleton says, I've been having suicidal thoughts. And I could see a production maybe botching this. I could yeah. see this going horribly wrong. but And or I could see it to possibly dividing the audience. Yes. I... I, are you are you hoping to get a laugh out of that first line? I mean, I, yeah. I'm hoping to get. I'm I'm okay if the first line is confusing. I mm. um, I hope that it's a laugh line because opening with that is, you know, a shock. But that's also why, uh, the content warning is there because mm. if a theater company wants to produce something like this, they can look at the content warning if they're like. I don't want to produce that. I don't have to read the rest of the play. I don't even have to make it to the first line. Um, And then like, if it's handled well, that can be a really good laugh line because you're just looking at a bunch of red things and then a skeleton's like, I want to die. (laughs) Well, it's just Um, like mash. You like mash? Yeah, it's it's dark comedy. I think it can really work. Um, And I'm also okay that if this play isn't for everybody, not everybody has to, not everybody has to be into everything. I think of all the plays that we're doing in this reading series live and unlocked at Waldman Brewery from Badmouth Theater Company, badmouthtc.com. I think of all the all five of the plays, this is the one that has the potential to baffle the most. Yeah. And I'm I'm happy for that. I'm really quite excited. We've had but we've had a, a pretty great reception. It's been fun to do this series. I just love where this play sits as a as its own animal uh, mm-hmm. where it, the the others aren't aren't quite quite like it. It reminds me uh how uh plastic uh the theater can be in the best way in yeah. the sense of malleable and adaptive and it can be strong and but you can do crazy things with with a play. And I, I think I think normies don't understand this. I think a lot of people have a bad taste in their mouth about plays and theater largely because of schools. Uh, so I think this play is a, is a great example of, Hey bro, if you or or, you know, uh, friend, whatever, Hey friend, if you want to write, if you want to write a play, it does not have to look like, uh, uh, our town. And, yeah. our, and again, our town is great, but yeah. 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 But it, it's our town. We already have it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a great play. I really enjoy our town. Yeah. Our um, town's great. But I, I wanted to write this instead, so I wrote this. And <laughs> the I page, also, yeah. Mm-hmm. I also want to bounce off the, the idea of it being plastic. Uh, one thing I, I think about a lot in plays, in my own plays, and in self-producing my own work is that theater is fiction, and it's okay to treat it like fiction. Like, this play isn't real. Skeletons aren't talking to novelty fish. I wish they were. Would have made a world a heck of a lot more interesting. Um <laughs> But like then you couldn't write about it. Yeah, it's it's fake. <laughs> and like we have that layer between us and it. And once you remember that it's fake and it's okay for it to be fake, you can you can do some wild stuff with it. Because it's already not real and it doesn't have to be real at all. Hmm. Yeah. And the page is blank when you sit to start. Yeah. It's totally blank. There are no rules. Yeah. Mari, if you were directing this. I like to ask Mari this question uh, on this show sometimes. <laughs> where, where would you start? Where would you start if you were directing this, Mari? Oh, God. I mean, I think I would honestly start with basically nothing. I think visually, the best thing to do would probably just to let people project onto it and not tell them who everybody is, even though even though your descriptions, Monty, are so wonderful, <laughs> I feel like I would really pare this down 
to the best of my ability because you want to keep some of that theatricality and not take it into such a realistic place. Mm -hmm. What do you kind of picture being done, especially with those? Because you said you direct your own work, especially with those, um, the NOLA, and then the last one. Yeah. You know, audiences, they're not going to see how these wonderful stage directions they are wonderful (laughs) but the audience isn't going to see it so what do you what do you do with it yeah i like i like i said earlier i want the director to really consider what they are asking of their actors in these um when i when i think about this play and how i would want to produce it if i were directing it myself i would really want to work with somebody that has a lot of understanding of puppetry uh, and like creating and building puppets. Cause I think in that first um, NOLA with the tableau you create, if you're using puppets, you just have to put the puppets there. Um, and uh, I want that first thing if people choose to do it, cause it is an optional uh, vignette. I want it to be a tableau. I want it to be a painting that the audience comes and looks at before the actual movement begins. And with the last one, I want, I like it when plays end on like something that the opposite of salt mother, essentially. I want the audience to be able to come together and experience like the denouement of a play in an event where they're sharing food. Like I want the reflection period of this piece to be explicitly a part of this piece, since it is a piece that so many people can interpret uh, however they want. And that's something that I intended when writing it. We'll keep that in mind when we read this on Monday and we get mm-hmm. the beats. We'll yeah. Sure that, the, that the play is yeah. not done until people eat the pickled beets. Uh, or some Monday. red wine. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah. They'll have to bring some red wine. Yeah, we'll, we'll insist. Uh, Monty, what has the life of this play been thus far? Has yeah. it been realized? Uh, has it, it has been, not been realized, mm-hmm. um, which I don't think is particularly surprising. I mean, you've all read it. It's, it's an expensive play to fully realize. Uh, and you got to really be okay with looking at a lot of the color red. Uh, it had it had its reading and workshop with the Cut Edge Theater Collective, and now it's having its reading here. And I'm excited to see where it goes next because those are the two things that it's had so far. And it's done. You're not rewriting. There are no changes. I I don't want to fully commit to it being done, but mm-hmm. I haven't thought of things I want to change yet. And maybe that'll change, but I am comfortable with where it's at for submitting it right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What is the, uh, what, what are you working on now? What's up next? Yeah, I've got a couple of things going on right now. It's, there's one more day of Salt Mother. I don't know when this podcast comes out, but when it comes out, go back in time and go to Denver, come see it. Um, and then we have uh, next week, another 10 minute play is going up with the Rogue Theater Festival in New York City. Uh, called a modern robin hood or some shit like that uh it's a fun little short play i don't want to spoil too much of that one and then next month i have another 20 minute play going up as part of the act one one act festival at uh, the secret theater in new york city where we're doing a bell tools which is a cosmic horror retelling of a christmas carol uh and we are doing that as a partially immersive work where I will be accepting audience volunteers to come sit on stage and be the person that this monologue is delivered to. Interesting. Awesome. <laughs> I hope it is. <laughs> um, and then I ha- I'm working on a podcast with a friend, uh, a long form uh, narrative podcast. It's going to be called Inc. It is a science fiction workplace comedy about two aliens that work on a mega ship who uh, the ship's job is to incorporate and absorb entire planets for the resources. And their job is collecting the raw cultural data from that uh, planet and sorting it into forms for uh, government reasons. government reasons Mm -hmm. because they are legally required for that position to exist Mm -hmm. and it is slightly cheaper to pay two salaries than it is to not fill the department Mm -hmm. interesting and uh, how far along are you with that we've got a good uh, number of finished episodes we just uh, 
we're about halfway through the casting process. We're oh, cool. doing callbacks right now. Uh, we meet every week to try and finish an episode together. Uh, we're going to have about 30 episodes. It's going to be about a year long. Wow. And it's Inc. I-N-C? I-N-C period. Okay. So be on the lookout for that. It'll be a lot of fun. Where can people find you before? We're going to go yeah. for another 10 minutes, but uh, yeah. Give yeah, your for plug. sure. Uh, you can find me on Instagram at NotYourCupOfMonty. Um, <laughs> you can find me on Twitter at MDMontalegre. Uh, those would probably be the two best places to keep up with me as far as what I'm doing. I have a website, montydmontalegre.com. You can go look at that old headshot. I have a different beard in that picture than I have now. <laughs> and I, I, of course, I'm going to post this episode at whyskeletonsarefunny.com. <laughs> They're funny. So, they are. I don't know why. I, it, skulls are scary. Skeletons are funny. We, yeah. Mari, you... This, that is the skeleton key, sorry. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Oh, <laughs> yep. Oh, God. Ronzi, do you know about the boneless pizza meme? Yes. It's like an old video. It's like, why? Would, how are you going to make it boneless? <laughs> yes, I know about the boneless pizza meme. Uh, for the record, I am a fan of boneless wings. I understand that they are nuggets. Oh. I don't care that they are nuggets. I enjoy oh. nuggets. Yes. Long live the Nuggets. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. My respect is just plummeting. Yeah, I w- just... wanted to say that at the closer to the end of the podcast so that Kevin had to show so much respect in the beginning. <laughs> now he has an opportunity to fire back at me. <laughs> nah. He yeah. gets to take it's... it all back. <laughs> Ridiculous. That's what we'll serve well, the audience tomorrow. Boneless wings. Uh, yeah, just a real in... red buffalo sauce. Yeah, 100%. 100%. Well, it's so curious that, and again, this, this is another point that I'm reminded of and which comes up periodically in the various talks that I do, because I do this other podcast and mm-hmm. talk with a lot of different artists. Uh, just this idea that you can extract inspiration and even structure, uh, much less metaphor, from practically anything. Yeah. The, the color red. Uh, you're writing a play, you can look at a symphony and look at the structure of the symphony and see how how it was structured and maybe discover how it works and just steal it. Mm -hmm. Why? I don't, I don't understand why I think that's lost on a lot of young artists and even on, Mm -hmm. even on mature artists, sometimes you forget, you don't have to invent, really invent hardly anything. Yeah. And you (laughs) shouldn't feel bad about that. I think Mm. that's the part that got lost on me when I was younger than I am now is that it is okay to not reinvent anything. You should just be having fun with it. Yeah. When you wrote this, were you sitting in your red bedroom? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) On my red, uncomfortable chair, (laughs) but it's red and that's what's important. Yeah. All right. Well, let's let's uh, finish with another round of questions. I know I've asked quite a few. Yeah, sure. I, I do have one more, um, and it has to do with this um, the length of the play. So this mm-hmm. this play sits in that unusual no man's land. Uh, is it a full length play? Uh, is it a short play? Is it a one act play? What is it? I understand. Who cares? Yeah. Uh, and yet, as a playwright, when you're in interacting with the, the business with, with, with theaters, right? They look, they're going to look at the page count and this sits at 55 pages. It seems to me you, and, and, and as you said, you write an awful lot of very, like relatively short plays, yeah. but it seems you're having quite a lot of success at that. Uh, and that's admirable. That's great. I do tell when, when I encounter people who are kind of like, oh, you're a playwright? Like, what Like what? What does that even look like? Ah, you know, mm-hmm. I tried my hand at writing an album. Like, well, you know, write a 10-minute play. You don't have to write a full yeah. play, right? There's, there, in a funny way, there are more opportunities for 10-minute plays and, oh, and easily. short plays. Yeah, so talk, talk a bit about that. You seem to have really yeah. uh, have some success, success with that, yeah. I, um, I would say that this play is a, a short play if I want to get it produced and a full-length play if I want to impress somebody. Uh, that is the spot that it sits. I, I really like the form of 10-minute plays because I like, I like shorter works. I used to write a lot of um, those very Americanized 575 haiku poems because uh, I really like the idea of being able to fit a whole idea into 17 syllables. Um, I think that the 10-minute play format is great to stretch out an idea 
Like if you have a small idea, why not write a 10 minute play about it? You can make it a longer play later if you mm-hmm. want. But also I think that a 10 minute play can be a good and complete thing. A lot of my works are short 10 minute plays that I have no intention of making into 30 minute hour long 90 minute plays because I already told everything that I wanted to say in those 10 minutes. I don't need it to be any longer than that. And I don't think that my audience needs it to be any longer than that either. And also, and I tell young playwrights this, people that are just getting out of college, if you want to get it produced, you got to have a couple of 10 minute plays that you really like, because you're going to start getting produced pretty soon after that, because there are so many opportunities for short works. And also, if you have short works, you can produce them yourself. Like, just get a couple of friends together, wear blacks, don't write too much of a set in there, and you've got a production. Well, and they say the same thing to novelists is, you know, write some short stories, get some short stories published mm-hmm. and start to think of it. Yeah, it's, it's a bit of a common trajectory. There's, there's nothing really new under the sun here. Uh, I like the 10 minute play format. I haven't written it, uh, you know, one in a lot, an awful long time. But when I, when I did, it's, it's enjoyable because you can sit and do it in a day. You yeah. In a, in a sitting, if you have the idea, you're in the shower, you're thinking, okay, I, this is the character. That's the character. Here are the rules. Here's the world. You sit, boom, it comes out. It's a beautiful mm-hmm. thing. I wish more, I wish more people would um, experiment with, with yeah. writing. Yeah. Writing for the theater. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's very And cool. then also this, if it's, if it's a 10 minute play festival and one of them's not that great, there's another one coming up pretty soon. <laughs> I do or, wish. Yeah. Sorry, sorry. I do wish cities held more ten-minute play festivals, just to get the yeah, get stories out there. New young playwrights mm-hmm. experimenting. People want to see new things. If you don't like it, like you said, there's another one in another ten minutes. Yeah, and yeah, I love that. And I and I I do wish more cities or uh, companies would produce festivals like that. Man, Amanda, it's almost like we run our own theater uh-huh. company. I know. I've I've always had this idea that I've never had the resources to bring to fruition, but I love the idea of stealing from like the music performance world where you, if you have a full length play, having a 10 minute play open for that could be a really fun idea. That's a great idea. Yeah. There should be more of that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's a very interesting idea. Hmm. Hmm. All right. Well, we do want to hmm. we do want to wind down, uh, but let's. I want to leave room. Uh, Mari, Amanda, do either of you have a, a final question for Monty before we uh, let him go? Mari, I mean, I think you answered so many of our questions, which is wonderful. But I I, I wanted to ask, kind of, who's who, what other playwrights have been really um, yeah. influential on your writing? Yeah, I think everybody in the Cut Edge Collective has been influential in my writing. Uh, just being able to see experimental work and experimental work at all stages of development um, from first drafts to finished productions has been really inspirational. Uh, I, I talk about inspiration a lot in terms of getting permission like when I see someone do something that might give me permission to do something. Um, I, other, other than that, I, <laughs> I, I don't actually read that much theater. And I, until recently I did not make enough money to go see a lot of theater, but I'm seeing two shows tonight as part of the Denver Fringe Festival. Uh, and I'm very, I'm looking forward to them. One of them's going to be a, a shadow puppetry thing about the folklore of the Rocky mountains. And another one is like, a choose your own adventure story. And I'm very excited to see how they do that on stage. That's awesome. There's a children's theater called imagination stage who have, has a spy who done it uh, interactive thing. So the kids get to choose sort of like which ending and you meet like a pirate and you meet a cowboy and you nice. meet an alien and like all these things. And it's super fun. And it's like, if kids love it, yeah. if adults love it. Like, like why not go for it? Um, but I was going to ask, what has been your favorite piece that you've written so far? Oh, whichever one I finished the most recent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. usually how it goes for me. I've, I've had pieces that have had more success than other ones. Um, but 
so often for me, whatever piece I've just finished is my favorite. Beautiful. Monty, thank you so much for sharing your play. It's all red, like a metaphor or something with us and for taking the time. I, I really enjoyed this conversation. We would have had this conversation whether or not we were recording. So oh, yeah. Oh, I yeah. really enjoyed it. Uh, stick around for a few minutes after we stop recording so we can talk production stuff. And for sure. uh, just really enjoyed this. And uh, I, I'm very excited to see what, what you have coming, um, coming Me next. Me too. I'm very excited to see what comes on that stew. (laughs) All right. This is uh, Mouthing Off from the Bad Mouth Theater Company at badmouthpc.com.